Hi, and welcome to episode five of the Let's Be Honest series with our first guest from across the Atlantic, Josh Novak. The series has now been running for just over a year as a tool to help us understand the nuances of discrimination through real life stories and examples from our peers. Black Lives Matter is an organized movement advocating for nonviolent civil disobedience in protest against racism in, and police brutality against black people in America. This will continue to be the focus of the movement and it still has a long road. Because of this movement, there has been conversations that have been both sparked and catalyzed, which would have unfortunately otherwise been left dormant. So I encourage you to use this as an opportune time to equip yourselves um, with as much knowledge as possible. Everyone will have opinions, so just make sure you understand all the pieces of this incredibly complex puzzle. Don't be afraid to be uncomfortable. It is a privilege to take a break from talking about difficult topics when it becomes overwhelming. And just remember that not everyone has that choice. So without any further delay, I want to introduce Josh. Hello. <laughs> um, so I approached you obviously for a number of reasons, and that includes being in the US, which is a completely different kettle of fish of 80% of the company. Um, so how's the last six weeks been for you? Yeah, it's been interesting. I think uh, most of the team here in North America, especially some of the larger cities in the United States can attest that it's been interesting, it's been inspiring, it's been difficult to watch and hear the stories that we didn't necessarily know about until now. Um, a lot of, you know, the content that Black Lives Matter is based around, you know, didn't really come into mainstream media until George Floyd and um, all of the, you know, resulting protests and demonstrations and move movements across the country. So um, being in New York has been super interesting. I don't want to talk for anyone that's been in other cities. They all have their own stories to tell, of course. Um, where I live um, in New York is, I live in Brooklyn. So I live about four blocks from where a lot of the initial demonstrations happen. And it's still the epicenter for like a meeting point that the Barclay Center and Grand Army Plaza. So for me, it's just been inspiring to see so many people from so many different walks of life um, come together, especially from people where I live, which admittedly is a gentrified neighbor, neighborhood that's on the kind of the cusp of some low-income housing, you know, is, um, I don't know if it's PC to call it council housing anymore in the UK, but that's the equivalent of what it is in my particular neighborhood in very, very gentrified areas. So it's been inspiring. It's been difficult to have the conversations and, and come to the realization that even though you don't consider yourself racist, it's more you're anti-racist, just not, not racist. So it's, it's interesting and it's it's great to see the progress that's happened with local municipalities trying to make some changes and you know big cities really tackling their budgets and this whole movement around defunding the police which is a misnomer in itself but it's not worth getting into in this other <laughs> session but yeah it's it's inspiring it's it's inspiring let's just leave it at that so um you moved to america when you were really young right yeah, so actually I was basically spent my entire life here. I was adopted from birth. So I, the only life I know is a life in America with uh, my family who happens to be a white American family. Um, yeah, so 
I don't, I've never had a life in India, to put it bluntly. <laughs> so you were, you were raised the whole time in, in America, sorry, and so that's, that's already a conflict in itself with the yeah. that you are and the parents being a different colour that they are. Um, yeah, it's in, um, yeah, yeah, sorry. sorry. <laughs> Uh, yeah, no, I, I um, it is. It's, I mean, for me, it's, it's my norm. So I never knew anything different. So it's just been what my life is. And it's been the opposite of a bad life. It's been an, a great, amazing, very privileged life, to be honest. Um, you know, I have a, a family that's, uh, we're not supposed to use the term colorblind anymore, but my parents really just wanted a family. And it's, what's interesting is that for some, many people, for me, it's just, again, my life. My sister is my parents' biological child, so uh, she's my older sister, and we are a very interesting family. Um, you know, I think they, my parents were quite progressive in that to decide that, you know, they wanted another child. Um, they had a little difficulty getting pregnant. They had my sister, but they still said, well, why not? Let's do it. There are kids out there that need homes. So this was my family growing up. This was who we were. Um, I never knew anything different and, and it was fine. Um, you know, as you grow older, you know, when I'm this little in these pictures, yeah. it's a great life and you're happy and you're smiling. And, um, I think what, you know, is admirable for my parents to have done in the eighties, which, you know, it's a stark difference. I think if you even, you know, you know, 37 years later, they researched, once they decided to adopt a child from India, they researched names. So I have an Indian name as well. That's my middle name. It's Ashok. Um, they researched it and they researched the whole story and history of who Ashok was to India. And they liked that he represented a transition from being a warmonger to being someone that prioritized peace and unity. And they felt that that was a name that represented something that needed to be present in the world today. Um, so that was great. And they've always done a really great job of making sure that I had as much connection to being Indian as I needed or wanted. Um, I'm sure at some points in times they forced me to be more aware of it than I was interested in. But in retrospect, looking back, it was really um, valuable for me. Um, but it's interesting because it created this kind of uh, duality that, um, you know, growing up in suburban Boston, which is a predominantly Irish, Catholic, very white area, uh, also being in part of a family that my mother is um, predominantly Irish Catholic herself, but with a little bit of uh, Greek thrown in there, um, and actually some English and Scottish. Um, and then my father, who is um, a second generation uh, Jew. Um, so having that, it created a whole other uh, diversity within our family as well. But um, it can't, oh, sorry, go ahead. <laughs> no, 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 it's just, it's, it's so like, you're so exposed to so many different cultures so early on. Like, it, you, like, and the term, like you said, that was colorblind, like, when you were a child, you, just, you wouldn't have noticed that anyway. So that's the mm. all you would have known. It's just, that's all I was going to say. It was just a reaction. But sorry, continue. Yeah. No, it's fine. Uh, please <laughs> ask away. So it, it's, I think with, you know, this whole, you know, you and I preparing for this and talk about the word duality in it. And it became more apparent as I grew older that, you know, for, it sounds weird, but I identify more as a, a white person internally when I'm with my family. But the minute I step out of the confines of my home, my family home, 
wherever that may be, whether we're in a hotel room on vacation or in our house that I grew up in, I'm Indian. And it doesn't matter if people know my background, but I'm just an Indian person. And I think it is, you know, this was my family. So those are my cousins and my sister. And so, but the minute I go outside, <clears throat> I'm Indian to whoever's seeing me. And became apparent as I became, you know, middle school, high school, and, and university, that you'd meet, at least, you know, in schooling, very few Indians. And once they realized I didn't come from a quote-unquote Indian family, and I didn't know what their, you know, secret terminology like Desi, and that I didn't grow up eating Indian food, they kind of didn't have much interest in me being part of their community. It was especially apparent. Um, when I got to university, which is surprising because I went to a very, very liberal school called Brown University. And, you know, they have so many different orientation programs as you enter the school. And I just never felt comfortable doing it because I never felt accepted. And when I tried to be part of, you know, the South Asian Student Alliance, it was just, I wasn't welcome. So it, it's funny, you're not necessarily accepted by white society, even though that's who you're identified with. You're not accepted by brown society because that's what everyone thinks you are until they find out that you technically aren't brown enough for them. Uh, that was it. That's, I've, I've, never, I've never considered being one or the other. And I think, I think obviously being, when you're British Asian in general, American Asian, there's always going to be that um, culture conflict, but something I never actually considered was having that I've, I've always had that safe haven, which I feel like you weren't privy to, and I like, and that's also something that I managed to have. So similar individuals having the same experience was something that even though even though you weren't the same color as everyone else, at least you knew that there was other people like that. So to feel like an outsider in a circle would definitely make me want a sense of belonging and I think yeah. when you're a child like and listening to you explain it when you're when you're a child you don't understand that so and it's something I've actually never considered so thank you but yeah I, I, had, I had a I had a safe space to go to yeah it's interesting because I mean you look at this <laughs> like on the one side the that's my childhood friends growing up in my neighborhood and so it I think I was lucky in that I didn't even kind of realize that I didn't have that support group. So I was very fortunate that from what I could tell, all the kids in my neighborhood were fine with me. I'm sure my sister did a lot of sticking up for me in the background that I didn't know about. Uh, she was very protective of me as an older sister. But, you know, we had the birthday parties, we had the this is. I'm sure I wasn't invited to some birthday parties because I was like the, the not white kid and uh, whatever. But I didn't know that. And, you know, my family's amazing and they I wouldn't say they protected it from me but they they created a life in a world that they created alternate support for me and they it was never anything you couldn't talk about um not that I think you know as a teenager I was prepared to talk about it necessarily but the picture of the big crowd that was me graduating from high school so to speak and it just I stick out like a sore thumb I stuck it in there because I think it's funny mm -hmm. I maybe one or two other people of color in that whole photo and that is my entire class and all of their families graduating so I mean that just is it gives you a, a glimpse into the world that I was living in and from the outside looking in it's probably like how the hell did he do that but that was just what I knew and I just dealt with it 
uh, knowingly or unknowingly. This is so nice. Um, <laughs> I, feel, I feel like we, we kind of skipped over the whole adoption because I think mm -hmm. that's actually an incredible story. Um, so you, you said you were adopted from birth? Yes, so it, interesting story, at least some of you might find it interesting, is that I, my parents did a lot of research about international adoption because they were convinced that there, you know, there were enough homes in America for white kids that were up for adoption. And they were like, there are so many kids in other countries that need homes. Um, and so they found, they did a lot of research. They were living in Maine at the time, which um, Maine is very rural. It's not very cosmopolitan. My parents moved up there for a job that my father got and they just did a lot of research. And I still don't understand how they did it in that day and age without the internet, but they found an organization called the International Mission of Hope that is, they have a base in Calcutta and they have a base in Vietnam. And my father did a lot of research too. And, and he realized that American men, white men, aren't as willing to adopt children of color because apparently there's like some weird thing in a lot of men's psyches that they can't bond as well with a son that doesn't look like them. And it's not, I don't even think it's rooted in racism. I think it's rooted in weird kind of psychology. But they were basically put on a waiting list because this place uh, who had done such a good job of getting the word out my parents in like 1981 found about it in rural Maine. They were doing a good job at their PR. And so they were on a waiting list for a son. So basically, I was really, really fortunate that the minute I was born, they told my parents, the first son, you're next. And if there is a boy born, he'll be yours. So give us his name. We'll put it on his birth certificate and he'll be yours from birth. So it's a really unique opportunity, uh, what was it? opportunity, that's a horrible word to use. It was a situation for me as a, a newborn, you know, a uh, child of an unwed mother um, who had been taken into this international mission of hope to be taken care of, um, to be adopted from birth. So I was born in September, I had to wait two months because not only did the courts close in India for a month, but there were, I was premature, but there were others that were more premature and they were prioritized to be flown out of India for their health and safety. So I was flown by a nun. Uh, it was a Christian charity related to Mother Teresa. And this nun had four wicker, uh, two wicker baskets, and in each wicker basket there were two babies. Um, and she flew, this explains why I'm so into the tourism and travel industry, I think, because I flew from Calcutta to Delhi, Delhi to Brussels, Brussels to London, London to New York. And my father flew from New York, from Boston to New York. They drove from Maine to Boston. He flew from Boston to New York and met the nun. So in this kind of array of pictures, that's my, the first page of my baby album, so to speak. That's my father arriving on his flight from New York and my sister and my mom were waiting um, with family friends. And that's my birth announcement. Um, you can see the cheeky, my mom hired a local artist to do it. You can see like kind of the cheeky Air India plane in the air, which I always laugh at. Um, <laughs> you can kind of see from the get-go that my parents were kind of embracing the whole concept of our kids from India, so let's do do this full stop. And, <laughs> and it's such a, like you said, it was such a long time ago. And like, <laughs> like 
I wouldn't even know how to do this now when we've got the internet. This is like, they managed to do it at a time when it just wasn't a thing. And it's so, yeah. um, your parents are so great. I wish they were here on the camera. Yeah. <laughs> well, they're right. upstairs and I told them to be quiet. Yeah. So, <laughs> so you can even see in the caricature of my family waiting for me that like my parents at the time were very progressive kind of hippies. My mom, you can't tell but that braid went all the way to her, down her back to basically her butt. And my father had, you know, a full beard and long hair. So <laughs> I think it kind of embodied that whole concept of free love. And oh, that's great. So you moved there, <laughs> you have a lovely family. Yeah. And, um, and then you obviously had to grow up and just like from the stories that you've already said and things about your sister protecting you, your parents must have been protecting you. I feel like instead of saying it was challenging, I want to, I want to say it must have been exhausting to have to explain this. Yeah, you know, as a kid, it wasn't as bad because I'm sure I just didn't know things were happening. But uh, as you get older, even these days, these days, I sound like an like an old man. Um, <laughs> you know, even just something as simple as going out to dinner with my dad or my mother or even all of us, you know, you get that. Oh, are you guys together? I didn't realize. Or you know, for us, it's just our family unit, and I think even just. I hate to say it's a microaggression, but it almost is because it's that kind of endemic assumption that a family has to look alike to be a family. And I think, you know, I imagine that, you know, um, biracial couples get that. And, you know, once they have kids, it makes it even more complicated. It's just, it's tough. Um, I think it bothers me more now than it ever did. But I think going back to the, the title of, of this episode you know where are you really from the thing that really 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 bothers me to this day and i implore all of you i am very rarely on a soapbox although many of you know lately i've been on a soapbox more than usual do not ask someone where they are really from it is probably the most offensive thing that you can do and it is a true microaggression it it just bothers me like yes i was born in india but i am from like, if I say I'm from Boston, don't say no, but where are you really from? If you want to know my ethnic background that badly, figure out a way to phrase it a little bit more sensitively. I, you Read the room, is what I would say. I just, I get, I'm very rarely offended, but, like, that question really gets my blood boiling. Because I, to me, I'm, I'm American. Like, I'm as American as I can be. I am, like, sitting in a seersucker shirt you know on the shore of a beach in massachusetts like how american can that be right now get ready to grill some hot dogs for fourth of july <laughs> but um yeah so that's kind of my thing but it's i think the first time i ever realized it is when in my school i was i went to a very small private school from sixth grade on and in my seventh grade english class i had a teacher named ms bruno who was notorious for being mean, difficult, and hard. And I was like already scared of her because like, who wants that as a teacher? But in my year, in my, so grade six through eight, there were three Indian kids in the year I was in seventh grade. Two of us were in seventh grade, one was in eighth grade. None of us looked alike. We were all different types of Indians. Well, I mean, I had an American name. So, I mean, I was already different. And then none of our names sounded alike and she could not get my name right. And at first I was like, okay, it's the beginning of the school year, whatever. 
but it did make me roll my eyes. I'm like, Arvind's not even in my class. So how, why is she calling me Arvind? Also, my name is Josh, they don't sound alike. But literally the whole year, at least once a week, she would call me by the wrong name. And that's when I start to realize that some people just can't get beyond the fact, the color of someone's skin. They couldn't, you know, discern the fact that we dressed differently, that we had different hair, that I'm not tall, but I was taller than this kid. I was at least eight inches taller than him. And it just, that's when it kind of really solidified in my mind that I am different and that, you know, when you live in a society that's predominantly white, people aren't always going to be respectful of the fact that you're still an individual and that they just clump you together. Yeah, yeah, I understand. I think, although, although exactly what you said, although there are innocent mistakes and innocent questions and there's no malicious intent, yeah. the ears that have to hear it have heard it for so long that it, yeah. it becomes disrespectful. And I think yeah. that, that's the big difference. I, I don't think anyone's ever, I think even when you said it now about don't ask that question, I don't think you're even yelling at anyone. I think it's more like, it's like disgruntled. Like, I, I don't yes. want to <laughs> I got a little My ears don't want to say it anymore. So yeah. you, you can't say it anymore is the difference. Yeah. And I think that's really important. Um, yeah. You mentioned microaggression and I think that's, it's a recent term. For, for me, it was recent. And I think when we looked at all the examples and stuff, um, and now that they've all come out, it's all kind of like, oh, those are things that have happened. Yeah. And like the story that you've just said now is like a prime example yeah. of things that have happened. And I, I can't lie, like, I think I'm definitely, I'm, I'm not innocent by any means. I, mean, I probably even asked you, like, where are you actually from when I first yeah. met you? I probably did the same thing and it's, it's not fair. Um, again, probably curiosity, because I was like, maybe you're from Sri Lanka. <laughs> it's funny, because it's like, I, we all, we're all guilty. I guarantee you I'm guilty as well. It's just fostering that self-awareness. But it's weird, because sometimes you give a pass. Like, you're like, oh, they're brown. I'll give them a pass. They just want to know, like, am I Bengali? Am I Sikh? Am I this? Am I that? So, like, you know, it, it's, it's all relative. But, you know, you can tell when someone's asking it from a, you're not really American point of view versus a, a, a curiosity view. So it's just, you know, tweak those words, you know? Yeah. And I think, yeah, like you said, it's just a challenge. And I don't think, I think what's, what I find the most challenging, what you've said this whole time, is actually the, the duality. Yeah. Um, so have you, have you been to India since? I have. So going back to my whole parents being pretty badass. <laughs> They always promised me that when I graduated high school, I would go to India. My dad took me to India for three weeks um, before I graduated high school and before I left for university. And we went all over northern India, like literally pretty much everywhere. And it's funny because we're concurrently going through all of our photos and putting them in an album. So uh, they always wanted me to go on a trip to discover my roots. And it started as like a let's be tourists and see India and Nepal as a side note. But then we ended up, we extended for an additional four days and we went just to spend time in Calcutta, just the two of us. Um, we had a, a, a driver take us around, but it was just us. And we did, we went everywhere and every, saw everything. The last place we went was the International Mission of Hope where I was born. And my father didn't tell me this, but he called the head 
Britain ahead. Um, and he managed, they let us in, like went in to see, you know, the organization. It's moved to a different location since I was born there. Um, but it was really, I think at the time, I didn't really know it was affecting me. My father says, you know, when we got back to the hotel, I was just silent for 24 hours, which for all of you that know me is very rare uh, for me to be speechless. So um, it was really moving. And in retrospect, it was definitely eye-opening. I couldn't get over how many kids were still there and had never been adopted. So it just really put into, I always say I feel lucky. And when my mother particularly hates when I say that I'm lucky or when people say that I'm so lucky because, you know, I found this life of privilege. My mother says the only person in this room that's lucky is me because I got the son that I wanted. So going to see that did make me feel lucky, but um, I always remember my mother saying that. She still says it to this day. But yeah, that was our, our, our trip to India. You're pulling, you're pulling heartstrings, Josh. <laughs> oh, oh, I forgot yeah. what the next question was. Yeah, well, I, I can tell you it was that going to where I was born affected me. But I think the one thing that struck me is that, um, and you and I have talked about this before, Darcy, just in general, it's the one place, it's the first time I, I was not a minority. And it was so weird to look like everyone else and the i you know i we arrived at like midnight into mumbai and then i walked out the hotel we stayed at the taj palace so right by the gateway to india and i remember i just walked out the hotel the first night or the first morning in the light of day and i was just like wow everyone looks like me this is i i left the hotel where everyone was white then i walked outside and i was like wow I look like everyone. And then people started, you know, coming up to me. I mean, yes, they were trying to sell me stuff, but they were speaking to me in Hindi. They were not speaking to me in English. And I was just like, wow, this is where I'm from. Like, this is where, uh, you know, I, I fit in, so to speak. And I'll never forget that feeling and how once you feel being part of a majority, it's hard not to think more acutely about the fact that you're a minority where you live. And this is, I think, part of the reason I love being in London so much is there's so many more South Asian people that I feel almost more comfortable being South Asian in London than I do in New York, which says a lot because New York's so diverse. That's so overwhelming. Like, to, like finally, it's just the whole thing's overwhelming, but your mom's completely right. Like, you, like it wasn't like you were rescued. It wasn't anything yeah. like that. There was, it was nothing like that. Yeah. Um, your your whole story is almost a poster for <laughs> <laughs> nature versus nurture. So like, is there is there anything you've noticed about kind of being raised in a in a white family in comparison? Yeah. Um, I mean, on like a very rudimentary level. Uh, I would say that spicy food is something that is very much nurture and not nature. This is probably <laughs> racist in and of itself, me even saying it, but let's be real. I, you know, I, this is very stereotypical. I grew up with an Irish Catholic mother cooking for me. We did not have spicy food. My father loves spicy food for whatever it's worth. 
but they, you know, I, I had to teach myself to enjoy spicy food, to enjoy curries and Indian fare. And they encouraged it. And my, my family encouraged it. My father dies for it. So he loved every minute of it. But I had to teach myself all of those things um, just to have like a, to feel a part of the community. It just, you know, to have something to hold on to. It sounds, it might sound silly to others, but I just, something as simple as being able to embrace that cuisine as something as, as part of where you're from was something I had to teach myself. And luckily, you know, I had a supportive family along the way, but I will say coming back from three and a half weeks in India, I was like, I couldn't stop eating Indian food. I didn't want to eat it. It's pretty amazing. But things like that. But, you know, being part of, you know, my family, it's just, it's who I am. This is that, this picture is my family. This is how we travel. That's my sister and her three kids, uh, my brother-in-law. We go on trips every year together. I threw in this kind of cheesy photo of my nephew and my feet in the stand. But, like, that just represents who we are. Like, it's not weird for them. Like, my sister's been an amazing person, just not as a vocal ally, but she's just taught her kids that like, you have an uncle, he is gay, he's brown, he's this, he's that, <laughs> that's fine. And they're, they're so, the kids, you know, kids these days, they're like, yeah, hello, Anya has two moms, like, I get <laughs> fine. But um, yeah, that's my reality and I wouldn't have it any other way. I've, I've got a perspective on, I think, life and race and acceptance or not being accepted uh, that it's not always easiest. I think I mentioned to you, I've coined the term, I, you know, I, can count on, I can't count on my hands and toes how many times I've been racized in life <laughs> when I'm the victim of racism. But I just, you have to take those opportunities, look at them as opportunities, not things that hold you back and just be happy and accept that you've got a, a, a life that a lot of people would be lucky to have. So yeah, that's yeah. that. You're, like, you're not even in the tradition, like, because you told me before, you're like, I'm incredibly privileged. And you told me that again and again, even when I was talking to you about it, and you felt like you had to, I, I didn't, when I was speaking to you the first time, I felt like you were justifying the fact that you didn't want to say that you had a difficult life because yeah. you were so, insistent that you your life was actually fine like you don't want it to be like a whole and I was like no that's completely fine but I think yeah. um privi privilege is always like it's I feel like it's always um got the connotation that it's got something to do with money yeah. but I think the fact that you grow up with any kind of like wealth isn't the same privilege as growing up with kind of stuff like you said like being comfortable or being like part of a community all those other little things that you kind of expect to have I think also is part of privilege and I think that's something that you just weren't considering because you're like I'm so privileged I'm fine like and you yeah. kept saying it and I was like no no like it's, it's all the other little things yeah you know? no it's, yeah. it's so true I mean like you know growing up my kind of to tie it back to Black Lives Matter is that I was raised my father he's a lawyer no less taught me to fear the police he taught me that the police weren't there to protect me that they were there to protect white people and that I was never going to be treated the same way if I got pulled over for speeding or going for a red light or being brown, that I was never going to be treated fairly or justly, especially in the small little town that I was growing up in. And yes, you know, I'm sure it's not fair to all the police officers out there that, that would have treated me fairly, but 
you know, even in the 80s and 90s, like that was something my father felt he needed to tell me to always be wary of that kind of authority and power. And then, you know, when 9-11 happened, my father, again, had to call me and say, you know, things are different now. You, you know, you're Indian, you know, you're not, you know, a radical Muslim, but, you know, we were watching Sikhs being attacked in America because they had turbans into, you know, ignorant Americans. A turban meant you were Muslim and then Muslims should be killed. I mean, that's how basic it gets in America. And then the saddest thing is that, you know, Donald Trump was elected president and I'm going to get slightly political. But once again, for the second time in my life, my father called me and said, he's empowering white supremacists. Be careful. You're not safe like you were with Obama as president. So, yeah, I, I had privilege in terms of opportunity and access to education and travel, but I was still a non-white person growing up in a predominantly white society. And I wasn't as privileged to say my sister was, even though we were from the exact same family, the exact same opportunities afforded to us. I think you, you summarized the disparity really well, Like that was perfect. Yeah. Um, basically, I'm conscious that I have 10 more questions or whatever, really. <laughs> I'm aware that I know that everyone else is going to want to ask questions. Um, so Donna's asked, um, have you found any challenges with acceptance or non-acceptance within the gay community? Oh yeah, that's a whole other thing. <laughs> a whole other, let's be honest. <laughs> I hate to admit it, I'm sure the other members of the Queer and Allies group can attest that um, yeah, racism and um, there's a lot of judgment and uh, marginalization within the LGBTQI plus community, but predominantly, I think, the gay male community. But again, that's a whole other session. <laughs> yeah. Hi, Josh. Um, thank you for sharing all those pictures and your insightful story. Um, if you could fast forward 10 years from now, um, what would be the one thing that you have have wanted that has definitely changed that would put a smile on your face? Uh, oh, that's a tough one. Um, it's hard because I don't think it would be around, you know, acceptance of, you know, South Asians or, you know, the communities that I hail from. I just, I really just want there to be some progress against the, the systemic racism that is rooted in the politics of the United States. It's just so hard to watch. I'm peripheral. Like I've been saying all along, especially in the origins groups and the work that we're trying to do right now, I don't know what it's like to be a black American. I don't have any idea but the amount of discrimination that I have had over in my life is a fraction of what black people suffer on a daily basis, simply based on that kind of sociological fear of, of black people by white people. So I just want there to be some, a better level of awareness and some change here. And then I want that to feed, you know, we can't take over everything, but I mean, the two places I love are the UK and, and the United States. So if we can start with those two and let it spread out from there, that would be absolutely amazing. I just wanted to know, have you ever thought or wanted to 
find your birth family or seek out your birth family? I, it's interesting. I'm probably one of the few adopted kids that I know um, that has known the psychological need or desire to do it. My, again, another gem from my mother was that when I was growing up and they talked, they couldn't hide the fact that I was adopted, which was, you know, just by looking at us. And she always said that a mother's job is to give their kids nothing more, nothing less. And that she said that my biological mother couldn't give me the life that I deserved. And that's why she got me. And it sounds, it might sound corny to some, but that's always gotten me through whatever. I've never had the desire because that, that's all I needed to hear growing up. And, um, you know, am I curious? Maybe. But that's my family is my family. You know, going back to nature versus nurture, it doesn't matter if you share a bloodline. It matters who's given you the support and the love that you need. You know, um, you can make your family from the people that support you the most. And, you know, the saying, this friends are the family that you choose kind of thing. I mean, they chose me, so to speak, but they give me everything that I need to have from a family perspective. We got a question from Janice. I just wanted to know if you still visit India. Uh, I haven't been back. That's not for lack of desire. I really want to go back again. My father and I were just saying that we're long overdue to go back. Um, hey Josh. Hello. I was wondering if you feel close to Indian culture. I just, I, I can imagine that you, living in the US, the um, white American people that you know could sometimes expect you to know everything about India. Do you, do you feel close enough? Do you ever feel like that's a bit of an awkward place to be? Uh, it can definitely be awkward. I'm very honest about it when people ask me questions. If I've, you know, luckily I've always been, my parents, between my parents and myself, it's always been something that I try to be aware of and, and know about. Um, for those of you that really know me, food is my language. So it starts with food for me. And that became something that I was really interested in. So I know a lot about Indian cuisine and, um, but you know, when people start asking me, oh, you can have an Indian wedding, that's where it kind of stops. I'm, I'm not part of that religion. I'm not part of that culture. And would I want one? Probably because it looks fun, but that's very a white person thing to say. I mean, it'd be very much cultural appropriation for me at this rate. Um, but yeah, no, I, I do feel close to it because I'm, I'm at the root of it, I'm Indian and like, you can't deny it. And I've made that connection for myself, but I certainly um, am no expert to talk about it. Uh, and luckily I have, I do have a number of Indian friends that help me have more knowledge and kind of empower me to be part of a community more and more. I think as people's, you know, that whole like Desi kind of, uh, exclusiveness has dissipated over the years. Hi, hi Josh. Hi. Hi Joshy. Did you ever find out the nun's name, the flying nun that took you to New York? You know, I didn't. I feel like I, we may have. The, my parents, I, they just gave it to me a couple of months ago. It's a whole file from when I was adopted. Including oh, wow. 
my like little baby Indian passport that I needed to leave the country. So happy to share that with people afterwards. It's kind of seeing. Wow. What was my it? baby passport. <laughs> what was that? What was it like getting the file? Uh, you know, I, I will, I haven't really delved into it. I didn't read all the details of it. I kind of stopped at the passport. So I'm like, my passport is my most beloved possession. So I was really fixated on the fact that this is my first ever passport. And I had like my name, it had Joshua. It's funny, they put my Indian name first on it. It was Ashok Joshua Novik, but it did have my like American, you know, given names as well. Um, but maybe one day I'll, I'll delve further for sure. I did when I was there, I met a, a nun that worked there while, when I was born. So she was asking me a lot of questions just about my life. And I do have this little ivory elephant, which I know is really uh, awkward because ivory is not a thing that we do now. But I have this little uh, elephant carved out of ivory that was given to me, or really my father at the time, when I was um, delivered. So I still have that too. So that's a little reminder, a uh, connection to India. Thank you. Thanks for your time, Josh. Thank you. Hi, Josh. Hi. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I love your story. It's a beautiful story. And I know we've spoken about this several times, and I know you're not very religious, but as a half Jewish man, what was it like growing up for you also getting to know the Jewish culture? So it's always been an interesting one. And I think as you know, Rachel, from us, well, A, working together, but us knowing each other for a while. Um, it's my, my, my father's parents, my father is the Jewish side of the family. So um, my, his parents did the best that they could to instill a little bit of Judaism in my life and my sister's life. I think I embrace it. A I definitely embrace it more than my sister did just because it, it represented a part of the family and, you know, a culture that I would, it's not dying, but I think it, it's less represented in society. So I was, intrigued by it and I kind of I do you know have no problem saying that I'm half Jewish and, and identify with that side of the of the family as well it's always interesting and you know it's, it's more of a cultural thing at this point than a religious thing for us but we grew up you know my grandmother would try to make us do Seder she would never get us to fast I think I did it once for Yom Kippur but um yeah it's been a part of our lives but I think as my when my parents my grandparents passed away it became less predominant in the family culture, but something that I've held on to as I think you know this great. Thanks for sharing. Yeah. Hi, Josh. Uh, thanks for, for sharing the story. That was, that was brilliant. Um, yeah, I was, I was question for you and, and anyone else who would know is really um, if the last uh, few months have had an impact on, on adoptions and, and your views on adoption, generally speaking, um, in in the recent um yeah events and if it's a solution if it's something good if yeah your views on it really yeah i honestly i don't know about if it's had any impact i sure hope that it hasn't um i still believe in it i think uh, you know adoptions aren't always easy i'm very lucky that I think my story is a quite positive one. 
but we have, you know, family friends that have had very difficult adoptions and, uh, but you know, some people, you know, there's nothing to say that having a biological child isn't any different, you know, it, you, you don't know what's going to happen and you just roll with the punches. Um, I mean, from my perspective, again, I, I don't see anything wrong with it. And it's, you have to feel comfortable with it though. I think, you know, I've had friends ask me what it's like to be adopted, which is kind of a very subjective question. Um, but I think it's the parents, if, if, I, if I've learned anything from my life, it starts with the parents' mindset. Set. It can't just be a substitution for having your own child. You have to kind of be fully in it to win it. There is a big to-do about a family in, in like Ohio, which is the middle of America, where they rehomed a kid that they adopted because they thought it was just too difficult. And the, they had a lot of backlash, not only because they're making money off of doing a family blog about having an adopted kid, but, you know, you know, it's because he had behavioral issues. And what if your biological kid had behavioral issues? You don't rehome. And, you know, who knows? Maybe they would have. But we're getting into a, a, a dicey topic. But, you know, it, it becomes, it, you have to go in with the, the right mindset and attitude, if I've learned anything from my parents. But... Uh, it will be interesting to see. It's something I'd actually I'll look into just to find out for you guys. Um, I want to say a massive, massive thank you, Josh, because it's it actually his day off, everyone, and he's coming to do this. Thank you so much for sharing your story. It was incredibly personal, and you didn't have to, but it's going to be so helpful to all of us. Thank you so much. I wish My I had pleasure. one of those, um, <laughs> applause. <laughs> um, but. Honestly, big thank you. If anyone wants to send any comments to Josh, he's happy to read them. He's happy to go through anything. Everyone tell him he was so great because it was really, really good. Thank you, everyone, for coming as well. Um, if you've got any tips, advice, comments, I only take positive ones. Please send them through. Um, and thank you so much. Hope you have a great rest of the week. <laughs>